0: Imagine a fire. Outside there is government agencies. Now they're tired because they've been waiting for 51 days. Waiting for David Koresh and his Branch Davidians to get out of that building, which is now burning. And they failed. And they fail failed pretty significantly. This is the story of the Waco siege. Welcome to Enter the Dark. Hello and welcome to Enter the Dark. I am Jan yeah, with me as always. This is Les. How's it going, Les? All good, man. All good. Good, good, good. Do you recovered from Ed and Herb being with you? Yeah, a little bit. Have they been staring at you and you sleep again? Always. Always watching. Well, yeah, um, thank you for joining us tonight. Today's show is on the Waco siege. Um, you no know bits about this, yeah, Les? Yeah,
1: like there's the Bill Hicks thing, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, there's a Bill Hicks skit on it. Yeah. Is that all of you know? a lot of what I know. Yeah well before we get started let's say what we do know that's our Patreon supporters who are Hannah Blue, O'Harrington, Amanda Champagne, Astoria Crowley, Amy Emering, Jack Coleman, Sasha Johnson, Lisa Dempsey, Marie T. Jensen, Casey the Cannibal, Misty Day, Becky Louise, Izzy from the Clink, Jules Henderson, James Harrington, Mr Crow, Richard Beccarelli, Michelle Hudson, Alicia Lou Allen, Fire Pixie, Little Mascara and Cookie Fano, welcome and thank you for being part of our Six Foot Family, if you do want to be part of it, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash enter the dark. One dollar up to fifty dollars, you know, you get free shit, it's all good. I'd so, buy that for a dollar. Would you? You only get stickers for a dollar. Stickers are always good though. Yeah they are. Our faces are on Probably, Yeah. Imagine, like, graffiti. I uh, just. <laughs> well, oh. Alicia did say that she took um, one of some of the stickers on her night out and left them on a lamppost.
1: That's there hilarious. So, somewhere there's a lamppost with mine and your faces on. Just zero. Absolutely zero fucking context.
0: It says, Enter to talk. Welcome to the family. It
1: does give some context.
0: But yeah. still. I haven't got their YouTube channel on because I didn't think about that. I'm not very good at advertising. Sorry, I'm eating um Herb Mullins, peanuts. But yeah, um please like, share and subscribe. Do it. Do it now. Do it. I'll wait. You done it? Good. All right then, so we go Shouldn't try that peanut, should he? It's gonna be interesting. It is. So, in 1993, the Branch Davidians compound at Mount Carmel near Waco in Texas burnt to the ground and a stack of bodies burnt with it. Now, at multiple times over the 51 days of the siege, um, there will be an excellent opportunities for both sides to make some sensible, peaceful decisions, but they didn't. And now there's a dark, charly smudge smoking at the ground in Waco. Not now, back then, 1993. Now it's just like, you know. Been put out, hasn't it? Yeah, Five somebody dollars. stumped it out, gave it a good
1: stump.
0: Yeah. So, the problems that started, started in 1959, when the owner of an extremely cool name was Bonnie Sue Howell. Bonnie Sue Howell. It's a good, good name, isn't it? Sounds like it's a fucking country band, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. She welcomed her son into the world, fathered by, and has since disappeared, and also coolly named less, Bobby Wayne Howell. Good it's name. Good names there, good names... Yeah, so Bonnie Sue, she thought for a bit, she's like, right, we've got Bobby Wayne and Bonnie Sue. Let's come up with a real cool name for our kid. She couldn't, so they just called him Vernon Wayne Howell. Bit of a letdown, isn't it? After those, I mean, they peaked with the first They did, yeah. So it seems that by this point, all the cool names must have run out. Vernon. Vernon. He would change his name, though. Um, But Vernon's childhood could be politely described as inauspicious and impolitely described as a bit of a shit fight, really. Um, He didn't know who his dad was, and he was partly raised in a boozy house of his grandparents. And when he was seven, his mother married his stepfather. And when he was was fresh out of jail, the new couple liked to party with the seedy crowd. Mm. Poor Vernon. There's beer everywhere, isn't there? Using religion as both an escape and a small means to gain attention, Vernon showed promise with his ability to memorize huge tracts of Bible and could regurgitate the whole thing by heart at age 12, but showed very little promise anywhere else. I mean, yeah, there's better things you could remember yeah. than the entire Bible. So, ah, uh, Philippines 4290. Yeah. Um, this is is a Philippines. Philistines. Yeah. Bet someone's looking at me and I go, he's a Philistine.
1: <laughs> oh, nice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and despite being able to read and absorb the word of God, he suffered from a learning disability and was considered at school, to put it nicely, a little bit thick. Now, <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. But history does show us, right, through no fault of their own, people call Vernon, right? You can recite bible passages verbatim and not customarily the most popular kids in high school such as our warped society i know
1: i know don't don't hate our site yeah
0: yeah people you know history favors people who like to go outside in the sun and you could say that at least in adulthood Vernon Howell pretty much made a career out of staying inside Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah He didn't overly do well in school and left in the mid-70s at 16, perhaps partly because the other kids used to call him Mr. Ritardo. Kids can be so cruel. Now, here's a tip, right? If you're going to tease someone at school, remember at some point they're going to want to either vengeance or a chance to finally feel powerful, okay? And a lot of the time, especially in places like America, where you've got guns, these things do not end well. So you just remember that when you're calling people names glass houses and all that yeah they could come with a gun just like you know you can get them anywhere over there over here you know it'd be difficult to get a gun well apparently it's not that difficult you could only get like legally no no not legally just legal guns
1: yeah that's not
0: that do you me a favour put them nuts down there for me I'm going to keep you them all through and you, I'll put your nuts on the floor thank you do not mind the herbs <laughs> Sorry, him. <laughs> anyway, eh, so once he'd left school, Vernon played to his strengths and spent a lot of time at the Seventh Day Adventist Church in Tyler, Texas. He discovered some confidence and let it blossom robustly into arrogance, catching the attention of church elders. But despite his clear devotion to scripture and his gift for keeping younger churchgoers enthralled when he waxed biblical... Waxed?
1: Waxed biblical?
0: <laughs> yeah, he eventually threw him out in 1981 for his constant challenges to authority. Imagine, can't even be like, hey... Why don't I do that? And they're like, "No, Vernon. We know you're cool, Vernon, and you know a lot about the Bible. But we're gonna like put these drapes up. Hey, I'll do it. And they're Like, no, Vernon. They don't say it on the news. Mu- All right, You don't hear this much on the news or from churches, but they do hate it. Right? When they t- when you tell them that they're wrong. So if you go, really? to, yeah. So if you go up to a um, priest and telling me he's wrong about something. They don't like it.
1: You know, I thought they'd be like really open to new ideas and progressive
0: churches. No. Surprisingly not. not. You know, it really does. You go tell a Catholic that abortion's okay. Apparently not. No. And also go and tell you go and tell a priest that you know Jesus didn't actually say homosexuality was bad. And they'll kick off on you. Big style. Wow. Well, that is... Apparently, I'm going to burn in hell. In hell? In hell! In hell? And I said to him, joke's on you, it don't fucking exist. nob, And then he raped me. Uh, 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 the French uh, Davidian uh, sect um, existed before Vernon Howell found it and settled in. It was an offshoot of the Davidian Seventh Day Adventist Church, itself an offshoot of the Seventh Day Adventist Church proper, so, we're going to look into a bit of the history here of the different Seventh-day Adventists and stuff. So, it starts off boring, but it ends up with people trying to make a zombie. So, sit tight, okay? Now, you can't talk about the Div- Branch Davidians without mentioning Victor Hotef, who was around in 1929 grumbling about the state of the Seventh-day Adventists and hollering for reform. He would He was hot. He was like, holler! Like Teddy Long, holler, holler, holler! Holler um, if you hear me. Yeah. Fucking wrestling fans now are going to be like, "What, Teddy Long? That's a good reference." Everyone else is like, "Who the fucks, Teddy Long?"
1: Yeah.
0: Holla, holla, holla! Make a tag team, y'all. Um, he thought the Adventists had become too caught up in worldly pursuits and had forgotten their true mission to prepare for the imminent return of Jesus Christ and live simply, which sounds like a super fun time. Yeah in traditional entrenched religion style the Adventists didn't think very much of people who disagreed with their way that they did things like I said earlier they don't like it when you tell them they still shocking. so they kicked Victor out now it makes you wonder how many religions and dominations there'd actually be today if churches found a way to make peace with dissenters and think kick people to the curb I mean they used to burn them to I'm going to say
1: like four didn't they that was their big one like when there was dissent back in the day Oh, what you believe the Bible should be spoken in English. native languages? Mm. Do you right? Get on the fucking bonfire then.
0: Did the guy who translated
1: the Bible into English get burnt? Um, there was um, what you called the Lollards. Mm. Lollolololololards. Sorry, where that come from? Fuck. Um. Yeah, you got the Lollards, and that guy got burnt. Mm. There you go. In fact, if you see like these engravings of like a fox giving a sermon and there being a load of geese, it's quite a famous one. That's the guy who was who wanted to have the Bible in English the first time.
0: And also if you if you actually do see a fox giving a sermon to geese you've taking magic mushrooms. That's not a microdose, Timmy. No. In 1935, in Huff, Houtaf decided to fuck them all, started his own re- religion on an uninspiring mound a few kilometres outside of Waco and called it Mount Carmel. Now, Americans, Carmel. it's spelled C-A-R-M-E-L, Carmel, right? Not Caramel, which you call Carmel because you can't speak properly. Car-mel. Well, Caramel. Caramel.
1: wonder how they say
0: Caramac. Carmack. Carmack. So Do not speak English? He invited some like-minders to come hang out with him and wait for Jesus and the spooky end times re- associated with his return. The group grew with their own food, kept the lifestyle to a bare minimum, and wrote books and pamphlets that kept membership dribbling in at a relaxed rate. When Victor died, his wife Florence took over the role of chief waiter for Jesus and got impatient about the big guy's return, started to look for clues and signs so she could put something definite in the calendar. Because, you know, you, you can't make like long-term plans can you like oh you know shall we go to the theater this night i don't know why well what happens if jesus is back we We might not be here should these tickets are expensive should we get them i don't know what should we do i think
1: we have more important things to be concentrating on so she definitely at
0: this point did not pick a number at random this is definitely what she did but she said 22nd of april 1959 that's when jesus is going to come back so spreading the word of her prediction and the specific date, she called for all Davidians to gather at Mount Carmel to await the day of reckoning. Some sold everything they owned to make this one-way pilgrimage, and there wasn't enough room at Mount Carmel for almost a thousand pilgrims, so many set up tents and camped, excited and mounted as the 22nd of April approached. And then nothing. No. Nought. So, as as you're probably aware, Jesus didn't come back and destroy the world in 1959. He didn't. No, he didn't. So, Flo had a bit of an egg on her face. Now, it wasn't great for the strength of the Davidians' resolves, right? And it's worse. And as is the want of the offshoots of the Seventh-day Adventists in particular, many people left to start their own offshoots. So they went. more offshoots from the offshoots. It's like the inception of offshoots. So she sunk, slunk off from Mount Carmel compound with an embarrassed tail between her legs. One of the offshoots was headed up by a guy called Ben Roden, who had not had the opportunity or numbers to challenge Florence Halteff before this point. He took over Mount Carmel compound in 1959 and called his particular group the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists because he was running low on imagination. Again, due to lack of creativity, he predicted that Jesus would be coming back to make sweeping changes to the world, but he was smart enough not to put a date on it because he's learned from Florence's mistake. So he's just ambiguous about it. He's, One like, day he's like, Jesus is coming back. When? He's coming. Instead, he provided the vague directive that Jesus would come back when everyone was spiritually mature and pure, so basically any time between right now and sometime in the future. Right. So come here, Inconveniently, he died himself in 1978. leadership of the long name that includes the word Davidian was hotly contested between Ben's wife Lois and Ben's nasty, violent shithead of a son George. Now George Roden was the kind of guy you really didn't want to get upset, but unluckily for everyone, he got upset at nearly everything. Now George got upset if you didn't believe his claims that he was the Messiah, the Chosen One and all the big cheese. Now, George Roden got upset if you questioned his authority, and George Roden got upset if you made best friends with his mum, tried to undermine him, and wanted to snatch Mount Carmel compound right out from underneath him. So, let's hope nobody does that. Oh, foreboding. After leaving school and not making much of himself, Vernon turned up at Mount Carmel compound aged 22. Not long after, in 1984, he married Rachel Jones, a girl of 14. Which isn't. Great. It's not all right, is it? Great, but well, it was under God's instructions, apparently, and it works in of mysterious, sometimes only just legal, sometimes pretty gross ways. Does our Lord? Um, I have to say this at this time. In Texas, it was legal to marry a fourteen-year-old if you had the parental consent. Right, mm. Texas. You like the Florida. You like Florida, Texas. Even Florida doesn't have that. With more guns. They just have Casey Anthony. 14 year olds. Yeah, like two 14 year old kids could marry each other. It's fucking weird. I think, I'm going to say, they've repealed that now.
1: I hope they have. Because that's dead open for abuse. Like, there must have been arranged marriages happening. Amongst farmers. It's Texas. Of course there is.
0: All these Texans now that are oh, go cattle baron. If all these Texans now like, oh if I could afford it and wasn't scared of shiny birds in the sky, I'd come over and shoot you. Uh, so in nineteen eighty three Krash, talking by his original name of Vernon, started claiming the gift of prophecy and he started a relationship with Lois Roden, who is the prophetess and leader of the sect, who happened to be seventy seven years old. Ooh, ooh. One extreme to the other, in it really. Now rumours later circulated that Kresh had actually impregnated Lois, to which Kresh was quoted as saying If I took a seventy seven year old woman and got her pregnant, you better believe I am God. That's <laughs> quite funny, is it? <laughs> um that last part was later quoted throughout the press as a way of whipping up hysteria against him. So he was like, Oh yeah, he said I am God You better believe I am God Said he was bigger than Jesus. No, he, he said uh, if you got a 77-year-old woman pregnant, you better believe he was God because that's uh, impossible. Now, the reason he's doing this, it wasn't because he wanted to bang a woman who was driving Gandhi's flip-flop, but to circumvent the man who claims to be the rightful heir to the Branch Davidians. George. Oh, he, he was that strong uh, politics guy. Angry George. Angry George. Now, although we started letting Koresh preach to all of the branch divisions, and by the 1987, the leadership was split between Koresh and George, with most of the people going over to the granny Shagger side, a front which must have really stuck in Joe Roden's craw. He might be a fairly violent psychopath, willing to do some fairly extreme things to establish his power over the religious group, but considered having sex with the cult leader, his mother, unavailable to him at a point-scoring option. He had principles. He wasn't going to fuck his mum. So George kicked up a stink, claimed Howell had raped his mother, and in 1984 chucked him out of the compound. Surprisingly for George, Vernon took a large chunk of Roden's followers with him, as so they preferred Vernon's comparatively calm and non-psychotic approach to worship and Bible study. Oh, the exiles soon took up camp in Palestine, Texas, a hundred miles away, living like the homeless in the campsites and rough huts. There are no point living no point living nice in permanent buildings if the world's about to end, is there? Last it's true, it's true, it's true. I uh, think uh, about these things. Yeah, yeah. So, like any same non calm non terrifying Messiah in 1987, George Roden decided that the only way to prove who was really and truly God's representative on Earth was to see who could bring a corpse back to life. This is the zombie bit. So he popped off to the graveyard in the compound with a shovel and exhumed the remains of Anna Hughes, a Davidian woman who died 20 years before at the age of 85. Now he got the body, placed it on a makeshift altar and draped her in a cloth bearing the Star of David. Because at this point, nothing... At this point... They're throwing
1: everything at the wall. Yeah, there's
0: nothing weird at this point. There's the... George laid down a challenge to Vernon. Whoever could resurrect Anna Hughes first would would proclaim the proper messiah. Presumably, George didn't think he could win an arm wrestle, which is why astron- which was astronomically less horrifying and gross. But let's face it, it's an imaginary problem, really, isn't it? Yeah. This. It's like, who's going to raise this dead corpse? None of you. She's been dead for 20 years. She was already 85. She had good innings. She's fucking desiccated. Desiccated
1: husk.
0: Yeah, like a coconut. Like a coconut. <laughs> Of the things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it is important to note here, in case you're wondering, nobody breathed new life into a 20-year-old pile of gristle and bones. Vernon saw this chance to get rid of George, though, and alerted authorities to the fact their mad bastard was interfering with dead bodies in over yonder compound.
1: Oh, dear,
0: dear. And over there in yonder compound, George Roden, he digging up bodies and having his way with him, like I did his mother. The police needed proof, though. They're bastards. Yeah. It's one thing the police need, it's proof. Well, they don't. It's, as you'll see, the ATF don't need proof. They just go above and beyond. Re- ready to claim that they were breaking into the compound to photograph evidence that Roden had done awfully exhumed a body, yet dressed in fatigues and onto the back teeth, Vernon and seven mates snuck into brown- Mount Carmel. Now, they were sprung and what ensued was a stereotypical Texas old-fashioned shootout. Pew, pew, pew. Ooh, they're good, aren't they? Now, despite hiding behind a tree... and ...that later had 18 bullets gouged out of its trunk... ...George Roden was only mildly injured in his chest and hand... ...shot by Vernon, who was sheltering behind a broken down car. He's got the better cover there, hasn't he has Much better. And unsurprisingly, George took offense to being shot... ...and he was asked and called for the police. Now, Vernon and his crew were arrested for attempted murder... ...and extremely significantly... ...when the police showed up to arrest them... ...and confiscate their weapons... They acquiesced calmly and willingly surrendered their weapons. Authorities came to arrest them. They didn't resist and, and just went, eager. you go, have everything. Take it all. You just go. We'll come with you. So let's see that information there, Les. Mm-hmm. Let's see if that's poignant at some stage later in this story.
1: Right. Uh, is this what we call foreshadowing? Maybe.
0: In that, the 1988 trial ended in a hung jury, so Vernon and his fellow raiders were sent home with weapons for a vegetarian pizza and an ice cream party. The officers who signed the weapons back out are probably kicking themselves right now, but, you know, you live in London, don't you? Yeah. George's immediate fate was less, less satisfactory. Due to being prone to flying off the handle in a broadly illegal way, George got in trouble for a number of different petty crimes, including tax evasion, having not paid tax owed on Mount Carmel compound for some considerable time. You always find a way, don't you? We well, do, yeah. George was being a little bitch that he wasn't granted an exemption for a religious organisation and sent letters to the courts detailing how much he hoped they'd contract AIDS. And I cannot recommend it for anyone who wants a lenient ear come trial time. What an Lord! Hope you get AIDS. I hope you all get AIDS. Please let me off. So, totally coincidentally to that, Les, the courts found an old restraining order that his mother had filed a decade before that had never been enforced. So he thought it was a pretty good time to enforce it. Good, good. Shout. George was no longer welcome on the compound after this. George is like, off you go, George. So Vernon could see that his time had come. He swooped into Mount Carmel while George Roden wasn't allowed anywhere near the place. Now Vernon arranged for his followers to help pay all the outstanding taxes owned and, work bu- and started work building new digs, clearing the compound of legal trouble and integrating himself into practically everybody. To na- by 1989, Vernon was the leader of the Branch Davidians. Eventually George Ruden moved to Odessa, Texas, hacked his roommate to death with an axe, and spent most of his remaining years in a hospital for the criminally insane, and died of a heart attack during an escape attempt in 1988. Stay in school, kids. Back at Mount Carmel, Vernon Howell settled well into his role as leader, concentrating mostly on leading the Branch Davidians into the Bible study, particularly the Book of Revelation. Oh, that football. Why is it that cult leaders love a bit of the Book of Revelation?
1: I guess it, like, softens you up, doesn't right. it? Right,
0: okay, just, let's get this out of here now. The, it's the last book in the Bible, in the New Testament, and it inspired Al um Shoko Ashara to release a bunch of gas on the Tokyo subway, and the Doe and Tea of Heaven's Gate were sure that they were the two lampstands mentioned in its pages. Mm. Right. You love it. Normal, non-braiderist Christians have a lot of trouble with the book of Revelation, though. Due to its non-linear storyline, its bizarre gemery, imagery, an incomprehensible plot, and its unconfirmed strong influence from some major hallucinogens. I mean, that's most of the fucking Bible, eh? Oh, burning bush speaking to me. I mean, yeah. I mean, to be honest, that burning bush thing could definitely be a metaphor for something. Did you know, though, a lot of Christians have actually argued against its inclusion in the Bible? What, the burning book? No, the Book of Revelation. They're like, it do not belong in this Bible. We don't like this bit. Why? it, it, it a bit too trippy for us. Is it? That's yeah. the best bit, I think. It's kind of like, they like the Wizard of Oz, but when they saw Return to Oz, they're like, not for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tape over this. Jet. It's
1: very much like that. That's a
0: fantastic analogy. Of course it is. It's one of mine. <laughs> but Vernon Howell loved its convoluted trippery, like a cat loves showing you its anus, and he devoted most of his t- life to interpreting it. For Vernon and the Branch Davidians, the most significant parts of the Book of Revelation were the Lamb, the 24 elders, and the fire, oh so much fire, oh, yeah. Relatively speaking, they spent hardly any time unlocking the mysteries of, for example, the four beasts covered with multiple eyes, which was a shame they're the most awesome guys. Yeah, they are. In the Book of Revelation, the lamb is an animal that's sometimes assumed to be Jesus, but that v- but that Vernon interpreters is the cool thing that loosens the seven seals of the piece of the paper that instructions for the end of the world are written on. Basically, the lamb is the thing that kickstarts the end of the world and leads the faithful safely through it, and not just a cute woolly creature going, you know, it tastes delicious, the potatoes as well. And the lamb in the Book of Revelations is a badass. Vernon Howell wanted very much to be a badass. He was the chosen one. He was the lamb. He was going to kickstart the end of days and save the faithful, leaving sinners to eat his dust. Yeah. He's like, see you later, sinners. I'm going to heaven. There, then there's the 24 elders who were found in the Book of Revelation, all dressed in white with crowns on their heads, sitting on a throne each. They're broadly interpreted as the ruling committee of the church, although there's a lot of argument and guesswork on that point. Suffice us to say, they're important and will probably have some role in ruling the world at the end of days, or at least get cushy jobs in admin and take care of most of the paperwork. Middle management guess. Yeah, basically. Vernon decided it was up to him to create the 24 elders in the form of his own children. Now, you know, fathering 24 children might mean he'd have to have a load of sex with lots of women, but he was saving the world. Little bit of sacrifice he did.
1: It's it. It, it's a um, poison chalice that
0: is. It's, it? it's a dirty job. but Someone's got to do it, and it was burning. Finally, the Book of Revelation has a lot of fire in it. Mostly, once the end, end of the world gets pretty serious, it's raining down from the sky in bits, sometimes mixed with blood, which is cute. And a third of all mankind is killed with fire before you've even reached the tenth chapter. Fire has a starring role in the end of the world in the Bible. It's not a completely crazy notion to suggest Vernon wouldn't mind going down in flames if putsch came to shove. In theory, of course. In theory. In theory. Foreboding. Around the time he established himself at Mount Carmel, Vernon Howell made one of his few good marketing decisions and changed his name to David Koresh. It's mm, a good name, isn't it? Now, the David part was a nod to the biblical King David who, you know, no biggie, he just founded Jerusalem at the capital of Israel in the right light and is kind of an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Kill Goliath as well. Mm. No less pompously presumptuous, <laughs> the Koresh part of Vernon's new name is from the Hebrew Cyrus, who was also, no biggie, just the king of the first Persian Empire and the dude who conquered Babylon according to the New Testament.
1: Would that be Cyrus the Great, by any chance?
0: Yes. Well, you know, overachievers yeah uh, whatever everyone can agree that david koresh is way more punk rock than vernon howell definitely on the court documents he stated he's changing his name for publicity and business purposes i mean it worked yeah so what's your name vernon howell what's your name david koresh tell me more yeah speaking of things that aren't punk rock david koresh um considered himself quite the musician lads. In the late 80s, Kresh recruited for the Branch Davidians enthusiastically in California, Israel, the UK, New Zealand, and Australia, and was pretty successful. The followers that died in 1993 in the Mount Carmel compound were from six different countries. Oh, wow. International superstar. New followers were partly drawn in by Kresh's gently charismatic style and good manners, but the main attraction to him and his church was that he could explain the Bible like nobody else. Clive. People were fascinated with his opinions about scripture and his incredible way of linking one part to another part. He also used music as a recruiting tool, inviting potential followers to jam sessions and peppering his sermons with sporadic bursts of strumming and song. What'd he do? He'd have a guitar and be like... So then, Jesus said, I am the way. But what did he mean by that?
1: So he's, what, he's essentially an early former of one of them wankers that comes to a party, and then you know if you've got, like, fucking guitar somewhere, they're that wanker.
0: No, right no, there. no, 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 he's the kind of guy who's, um... You know when you're at school, and they take you all into the assembly hall? Yeah. And this one comes on stage, and they start playing a guitar and talking to you at the same time? Hey, I'm going to talk to you about Stranger Danger. And just talking. Like, you know what Stranger is, right, kids? Like that. And you're listening because you're like, one, I'm getting out of class. And two, this guy's got a guitar. He's playing it. He's pretty good. And he's telling me about stuff. Kind of like that. Yeah. You never paid attention to them, did you? Well, you were the Stranger? Pretty much. Yeah.
1: I don't know. They just seemed a bit too cheesy to take any
0: notice of. They did give you free books sometimes.
1: No, not one. We had this one come in and they were doing shit about Jesus, but I did go to a Catholic school.
0: So. Ooh, what do you mean I went to a Catholic school? It's an It could be argued, however, that the reason Cresh spent time in California wasn't purely for recruiting purposes, Les. California was where record deals were made and where up-and-coming musicians, if they were any good, were discovered. The thing is that if they were any good bit, that's yeah. the important bit, right? Now, listening to Koresh's music would not strictly be considered doing yourself a favour, and it's at best, it was badly recorded stylistically immature folk music. At its second best, it was exactly the same as the worst guy who ever brought a guitar to a party, and instead of Wonderwall, he's playing Christian rock. So, Stripe it. Not Creed. Not Creed. Because Creed is a striper, that would. Yeah. The Bible tells us many things are an abomination, yet ne- weirdly never mentions Christian rock. Because irony has never been Christianity's strong point, Les. Never, no. Koresh <laughs> even handed out business cards with the word Messiah emblazoned across the top of them s- in the subtitle Cyrus Productions, under his own name on the card, he printed guitar, vocals, and that was next to the words, Steve Schneider, Music Manager. Now, there were a number of references to Bible passages on the back of the card, which is an, honestly probably not the exact vibe record companies were looking for, but also weren't looking for people who first wrote terrible songs and sang them badly. I don't know, Ed Sheeran. The business cards still come up for auction every now and again, so if you have got a couple of hundred dollars, do yourself a favour and get one. I'd like one. Yeah, if anyone wants to buy me one, there you go, do that, buy me a present. Steve Schneider, the music manager, would develop into very much into Steve Schneider, David Koresh's second in charge. A former university lecturer in comparative religion and a wannabe evangelist, Schneider joined Branch Davidians in the mid-80s, dissatisfied with his previous experience with the seven, Seventh Day Adventists he became the main point of contact between the Branch Davidians and reporters and authorities in the outside world, both before any of the fateful 1993 trouble and during negotiations with the authorities during the siege that ended in Waco's most famous fire. Now, it seems that most of the time he was associated with Davy Koresh, from endeavouring to help kickstart his music career to trying to help a bunch of cult members not die in a shower of bullets, he did the best he could under the circumstances. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, in return for Schneider's devotion, bullish stubbornness when dealing with outsiders and tireless work, Kresh slept with his wife and got her pregnant. So
1: which one's that now? Is that number
0: one? Yeah. But when you believe there's a chance someone might be a prophet sent directly to Earth by God, it seems you'll let them treat you like an unpopular girl trying to get there into the clique at high school. It's a bit like Heather's very much so yeah the branch davidians were at the heart of their beliefs a religious group that were keenly focused on a complex series of interpretations of the christian bible under Koresh's guidance they didn't read passages from the bible in isolation or even necessarily in chronological order but played one off one passage against the other passage here gleaning meaning not from one or the other but by their contrast and juxtaposition It wasn't just making shit up for their own ends, per se, but it was definitely a distant cousin of making shit up for their own ends. Yeah. Davy Koresh really, really loved the Bible study. In a rudimentary chapel in Mount Carmel compound, furnished with plain wooden bleacher-style seats, Koresh would talk for hours. Six hours was normal, 15 hours was not unheard of. About the concepts and characters of the Bible, he would invite discussion and debate... And initiate a call and response Ferris Bueller style interpretive tutorial. So, yeah, you seen Ferris Bueller? Yeah, yeah. You, know, you get that reference? You? I get that reference. Because you looked yeah. a bit confused then. No, my mind
1: just immediately went to him in the um,
0: nightgown.
1: <laughs> <like>, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wherever there were references in the scripture to one individual who might have the key to it all, or would lead the faithful to heaven, or would initiate the next cataclysmic phase in world history, Kresh made one thing clear. That dude's me. He was the next guy to feature in God's earthly plan. The two other themes that a great deal of Branch Davidian's Bible interpretation focused on were, were were constant and significant too. The first was that Jesus was going to come back really, really soon, and the second was that when Jesus came back, it was going to be really fucking messy. There was going to be a fight, there was going to be death, and there was going to be fire, and it was going to be directly involved the Branch Davidians, and it was going to absolutely feature David Kresh in a pivotal role. In 1991, Koresh began to prepare his followers for war. He taught them how to shoot guns and performed te- perform telltale paranoid adjustments to the areas of the compound. A series of tunnels were dug underneath the buildings, and a watchtower was erected. An old buzz was buried to serve as a potential bunker. If only he'd focused instead on landscaping or polishing cement floors to a high shine, like you see on normal non-cult renovation shows, he might still be alive today, That's right. well be. In habits inherited from the Seventh-day Adventists, Koresh enforced a vegetarian diet free from alcohol and caffeine. In a move less strictly Adventistry, in around 1989 he also decided he was entitled to take any nearby ladies he wanted to as his spiritual wives. According to Koresh, God wanted him to have lots of sex. God wanted him to have sex with virgins. God wanted him to make 24 children. Yeah. Now, God apparently spent an awful lot of time and is thinking about this, exactly the kind of sex that David Koresh should be having, and the kind of sex was all of it. Or every What what kind of sex do you need to have every sex? Directly donkey-punched someone. Oh, Yeah. Now, Koresh worked harder trying to justify his sexual proclivities by using the word God and the Bible more than he ever did ironing a shirt or getting a haircut. For all the women Davy Koresh was bedding in God's name, he is hoping God also wanted him to spoon them afterwards and call them the next day. Because I hope so. Yeah,
1: because that is the honourable thing to do. That's what you don't do.
0: The problem was, not all the women Crash took as wives were legally old enough to behave like wives do. Now, there's little doubt that Cresh slept with girls as young as 12 and 13, and their sisters that he bragged about bedding girls a fair bit younger. He He was much more determined to follow the laws he found in the Bible than the laws that were found in actual law which was a really, really shitty way of excusing that you were a sexual predator. At this point, though, like I said, the age of consent in Texas was 14, and thank fuck, it has been changed. Yeah. So, god damn you, Texas. He told girls that if they were good, then one day they'd be worthy of being one of his wives, giving them a cheap Star of David necklace to symbolise their readiness. A bit like marking them for a prize, except for the prize is a weedy Bible nerd with delusions of grandeur. And the parents of these girls were fine with the whole scenario because someone that God had chosen as the prophet had in, and in turn chosen their daughter as his beddable following. Mm-hmm. I'd never be okay with that. No. No. Of all things you might excuse Koresh for, or at least argue his way into a reasonable acceptance, his blatant and pathetic need to get laid is his most heinous characteristic. The guy at the bar who tells you lies just to get into your pants has nothing on Davy Koresh. So, in other words, Les has nothing on David Koresh. No. Not content with just taking unmarried ladies as his spiritual wives, by 1989, Koresh had decided he wanted every female, and had decided um, every female human in the Branch Davidians to be his wife, particularly the hot ones. Of course. The ugly ones came last. He told all the married men in the cult that they were no longer married, sorry, and they were only, he was the only person allowed to have sex. I can't see that getting down well. Well, technically, their wives were still allowed to have sex, but it was just with Kresh, not the husbands. Now, Kresh explained to the religiously cuckolded husbands that he was merely shouldering the burden of sexuality in the group, believing that for others, sex was a gateway to pain and deceit. The men would meet their perfect mate in heaven. The women had their perfect mate right here on earth, and it was the studly Davy Koresh. Will Smith
1: would have done right in there. He, he would,
0: yeah, he would have been okay. He was like, keep your name out, Why's name you fucking mouth. I can't, the prophet of God. That's okay, then. <laughs> so, Koresh, Koresh called this new hand me your missus policy the new light. The new light? The new light. Got a nice spin on it, didn't you? Yeah, because calling it I'm nobbing your wife is a bit too crass.
1: Yeah.
0: Hilariously, and a source of great pride to Antipodeans, it was the point of the couple of Australians that they immediately left the group. The end of the world <laughs> is all fine. Well... If you're telling an Australian he can't bugger his wife, then Struth crash, you gallaber. He's like, what? Oh, I can't screw my wife. I can't have my beer. That went bad enough, but now I can't screw my wife. In the lefty, the bloody. Sheila, come on, we're out of here. There you go. This is the reason that we're the 93rd most popular podcast in Turkey. We are. 93rd most popular true crime podcast in Turkey. It's true. We're big in Turkey. We're big
1: where they have despot leaders. Oh, where was that? Is that Serbia?
0: Serbia. Turkey. Quite big in Russia.
1: Yeah, we are quite big in Russia, aren't we? Why do we get the
0: fascists? I mean, yeah. Socialist countries, fuck off, we, the fascist lovers. So one of the functions of Davy's wives was to incubate heirs for him. He was still aiming for 24 children to match the 24 elders in the Book of Revelation, but when push came to shove, depending on whose evidence you rely on, Kresh only age 17, which, to be fair, that's a pretty decent effort. Yeah, it is. Now, due to the group's relative isolation and their attitude towards the laws of the outside world, the birth certificates of many of the children born within the court do not specify who the father is. But the father of those children was, in loads of cases, Davy Koresh. Now, in addition to really quite probably sex with minors, Koresh and his, and under his instruction, many of his followers reportedly also nudged the edge of just plain old child abuse via a number of violent punishments. Regardless of anyone's contentious feelings around the subject of spanking as a form of discipline, stories from ex-cult members claim that Koresh really pushed the envelope. Reportedly for crimes as mad as not wanting to hug him or crying when they shouldn't, children as young as eight months old were paddled on the buttocks until they were bruised. Claims of abuse were later oft quoted by authorities as one of the tipping points for taking action on the Branch Davidians, but there had been an inconvenient lack of substantive evidence that it had actually occurred. Now, these ex-cult members were the Australians, so they're fucking angry anyway. And then they're going, oh, there's child abuse going on in there. <laughs> like, he's saying, yeah, he's not giving them any beer. And he's like, he's smacking them on the rear. If you want. And he's like, okay. So the steady stream of guns and gun parts <laughs> working away from the surrounding areas of Texas into Mount Carmel compound was also astounding. Traditionally, it's pretty easy to buy guns in Texas since... Texas began, especially when compared to all the parts of the United States, and it was just even easier at Texas gun shows, where you needed a driver's license, a pen to sign a form, and enough money to buy guns. Fair. So, so, here's me, I've got a pen, and money in my old boots, because I can't hold anything else. Fuck. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Branch Davidians attended and dealt at gun shows and were frequent customers at gun shops and ordered additional items by post. Now, mail order guns for a Colt just for the price of a stamp, plus loads of fun with the bubble wrap afterwards. Hmm? It's gonna be good, in it? Yep. Despite comparatively generous gun laws, it was still a lot easier in Texas to buy semi automatic weapons like AR 15s than it was to buy fully automatic weapons like M 16s. Even if you bought AR-15s and the parts to convert them into fully automatic firearms, you had to pay a special license to do so and pay a fee to the government. Now, this is where the government got them. They weren't wow. paying the tax. and They were purchasing instructional pamphlets and videos that taught people how to convert guns like AR-15s. Coincidences and bullet casings all over the place there was. So, it, this is the thing. If the government want to get you, you're breaking the law they'll always find some way that you're breaking the law. Now, unsurprisingly, government had the compound on surveillance. Now, the 120-so branch Davidians weren't easily fooled, though. They were pretty sure that um, two college students living in a house across the road from the compound were undercover agents. They weren't stoned all of the time, for one thing. And (laughs) that's a dead giveaway. (laughs) Additionally, the college students were in their 30s and drove cars that would have easily passed the roadworthiness test. And when a couple of suspicious Branch Davidians knocked on the door with a six pack of beer, they didn't let them in. I love how, like, the Branch Davidians were like clued up on this. Honestly, the, <laughs> like the ATF and the government in this, I swear to God. They, so, so you know, if you're a, if you're a stu- posing as students, right? Someone's like, hey, we've got some beer for you. You're not, no, you're not coming in. Take the beer off them. But no. So they were all <laughs> so those beer-refusing almost middle-aged people with disposable incomes were definitely the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. So the ATF. Now the ATF knew something was up inside the Branch Davidian compound. The Branch Davidians knew they were being watched by the ATF. And it was only a matter of time before the whole situation come to a head. And there was a strong scent of raid in the air. And also, the ATF also went to the press and said, we're going to raid the Branch Davidian compound. Don't release us until we've raided it. And the police raided it. And the press just let it out. So, like, ah, Waco News. The ATF are going to raid us. Oh, when? They haven't said, but they said here they're, they're planning on it. Okay, we better make sure that they don't do that. Though. That
1: all fucking happened.
0: Yeah. For fuck's sake. <laughs> Now, in 1992, a precursor to Waco happened that would also be a catalyst for the government to press on with the raids at the compound, and that incident was called Ruby Ridge. Now, Ruby Ridge was a very infamous incident that people still talk about when referencing the Second Amendment. Now, it was the site of an 11-day siege in 1982 in Boundary County, Idaho, near Naples, it began on August 21st when deputies of the United States Marshal Service initiated action to apprehend and arrest Randy Weaver under a bench warrant after his failure to appear on firearms charges. Given three conflicting dates for his court appearance and suspecting a conspiracy against him, Weaver refused to surrender, and members of his immediate family and family friend Kevin Harris resisted as well. Now the hostage rescue team of the Federal Bureau of Investigation became involved as the siege developed. During, the, during this, the U.S. Marshal's service reconnaissance of the Weaver property, six U.S. Marshals encountered Harrison Weaver's 14-year-old son, Sammy, in the woods near the family cabin. A shootout took place. because course, you know, it would. Yeah. Deputy U.S. Marshal Francis Deegan, Sammy Weaver, and the Weaver's dog, Stryker, all died as a result. In the subsequent siege of the Weaver residence, led by the FBI, Weaver's wife, Vicky was killed by FBI sniper fire, and all casualties occurred in the first two days of the operation. The siege and standoff were ultimately resolved by civilian negotiators. Harry surrendered and was arrested on August 30th, while Weaver and his three daughters surrendered the next day. Now, the events that took place at Ruby Ridge and law enforcement's response during Waco siege roughly six months later have been cited by commentators as catalysts for the Oklahoma City bombing by Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. So it's a big thing yeah so after ruby ridge atf were looking to get some good pr and were searching for something they could get them back into the good books while they were planning to raid on waco they expected it to last 20 minutes and it would show that they were a well-oiled machine and ruby ridge was just a an abomination
1: so it's gonna it's gonna go wild then
0: yeah it lasted 51 days so, the raid on Mount Carmel compound and the subsequent siege. Before we get into the details of this world-renowned clusterfuck, it's important to know that almost everyone involved in this tells a different story, and almost nobody involved did a great job. There were terrible decisions made on all sides, light told by all sides, and bravado-fueled incompetence on all sides. It's basically a textbook example of what it looks like when white men in positions of power compete to see who's got the biggest penis. Yeah. The ATF were absolutely sure there were too many of the wrong types of guns in the Branch Davidian compound, and were understandably nervous about the extent to which the religious group were looking more and more like an organised military outfit. But the jurisdiction of the ATF was reasonably narrow and focused primarily on the use of illegal firearms. But if you look at the warrants, two-thirds of it was all child abuse. Yeah. Which isn't under the ATF's jurisdiction. No, it's not, no. Well, they had strong suspicions there were illegal, unlicensed guns inside the compound's walls, but they didn't have as much evidence as they liked. As a result, they were happy for rumours to circulate about other illegal activity w- within the cult, such as the child abuse. So, onlookers would be like, oh, well, you know, there's child abuse going on in there, so yeah, yeah, go in, get him. The two big dates are the 28th of February and the day of the initial the day of the initial raid, and the 19th of April 1993, the day the siege ended in death and flames. With 51 days of messed up histronics in between, the day of the raid, the ATF wanted to surprise David Koresh and the gang with arrest and search ones, and timed the arrival for the part of the day when most of the members of the group would be scattered out and about working. But a cameraman, on his way to help cover the raid, had lost his way and asked a postman for directions. The postman happened to be David Koresh's brother-in-law, Rise. So thanks to this tip-off, the Branch Davidians were concentrated inside, ready to receive guests with their guns raised. Because no story set in Texas is complete without a minimum of two, that's two good old-fashioned shootouts, less, a gunfight ensued. Now, nobody agrees who shot first, but four ATF kill uh, agents and six Branch Davidians were killed, meaning loads of tiresome paperwork for the Bureau there. But, what they, what most people believe is the ATF rolled up on them, right? And they were coming off in cattle trucks. Yeah. So if the Branch Davidians wanted to, they could have fucking railed on them wiped them out. Mm-hmm. Branch Davidians were like, no, no. We've got these guns. If you want to come inside, check them. You can. But, you know, why are you all coming with guns? What's going on here? Everyone had the guns raised. They think one ATF agent got nervous and went, shot his gun by accident and then all the others just bow 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 and they were calling like 911 like Branch Fidians were in. you could hear them screaming and in it there was a woman who was nursing a baby she got shot in her wrist and it come out through her elbow and stuff like that so it wasn't like the ATF were just like pow, pow, oh and also you've got a big metal gate on the front door yeah right full of bullet holes All from the outside, so they were shooting into the compound. Yeah. On the other side, there was no bullet holes going through that door. So, but because of this, the FBI could now be called in, um, because. Slaughter of eight government agents tickles the fancy very much indeed. Oh yeah. The FBI were quite comfortable and experienced with the finer points of negotiating with a much broader variety of trigger-happy activists in the ATF. And the ATF had a reputation of flashy displays of aggression, so there's no telling how extremely terrible things would have gone if it had just been left to them. But it still wasn't good. Now, negotiators on the outside made contact quite correctly with David Koresh and his second Steve Schneider on the inside. Koresh revealed to the feds that he'd been shot in the wrist and hip, and this would have been better for news a news for the agents who are hoping he will come out for treatment except for two things. One, his wounds were treated competently by other cult members, and secondly, David Koresh would absolutely love any situation that makes him look like a martyr. On the second day of the raid, ten children were released, and the FBI brought some tanks in to manage the compound's perimeter, providing, proving the government to have very robust testicles indeed. So they're letting kids out. The FBI are bringing in tanks. I love
1: how the FBI actually have tanks. The FBI have everything. You know, like, our, like, what is it? Scotland Yard, is yeah. it? What's our version of the FBI? It's,
0: it's, 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 we haven't got one, have we? Just no, the CID?
1: Just got CID, like, that's it. Like, they don't fucking roll up with tanks, do they?
0: No. I mean, we... We just... Unleash
1: our army on people. I guess we that's the
0: thing, that. isn't it? You just like you know, kind of post about us, just <laughs> send him an email with just regards at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, with the exception of special phone lines um, directed to the federal negotiators, phone lines out of the compound were cut. Later in the raid, a nine-year-old girl was released with a note pinned to her jacket, which announced that once children were out, the adults would die. Which is a pretty depressing thing to find about, pinned a pin to a child's clothing, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll just look like, what well, have you got there? It's like, birthday girl, ah, oh, I love my mummy, ah. Oh. Once all the kids are out, the adults are going to die. You're, like, mm, you're a bit God. of a downer, aren't you? <laughs> So, negotiations dragged on and on, and cult members dribbled out gradually, but there were still up to 100 people left inside, tired, cold, and angry. But they weren't hungry, though, because, along with all the guns, they'd been stockpiling military food rations, so there was no telling how long they could survive in there. Now, over the ensuing days, Koresh and the branch civilians tried all sorts of tactics to avoid emerging from the fortress. Now, Koresh contacted multiple phone in- conducted multiple phone infuse that were featured on CNN and Dallas Radio, and the attention... Because, you know, he's attention seeker.
1: Yeah.
0: They asked for videos, like, to press, so they'd get a video camera and send it out so the press could use it. He filmed himself in the videos that he leaked to the press, showing himself with a faultless, besieged martyr with battle wounds surrounded by his children. Most of his participation in negotiations consisted of what agents called Bible babble, streams of religious doctrine and resolving the standoff, which would have also been unbelievably boring. Yeah. On the third day of the siege, Koresh sent out a one-hour tape of specially recorded sermon, promising to come out of the compound as soon as it was broadcast on radio. It was broadcast, but he didn't come out because God told him to wait. I mean, if you're the prophet, you can't disprove it. No, you can't. Now, Koresh then promised to come out over the compound just after the Passover. Passover passed over. He didn't come out, because God told him to wait. Then he promised to come out just as soon as he finished writing a manuscript detailing his interpretation of the Seven Seals in the Book of Revelation. He didn't finish it and he didn't come out. Um, you know, there's the kids at school now, Mr. Retardo, he rants pretty slow. <laughs> Questionable tactics weren't purely the domain of the Branch Davidians though. Though techniques used by the FBI and ATF to try and irritate the cult members into coming out with their hands up were manifold, and also least annoying as a teenager trying to get their own way, electricity was cut off and reconnected at whim, depending on how willing Koresh was to communicate and negotiate. Bright lights were shone into the compound all night, and agents played extremely loud music over large speakers, including Tibetan chants, Christmas music, and Nancy Sinatra's "These Boots Are Made for Walking." Now, if you go onto YouTube, you can see they've got that like, thing like, "These boots are made for working," like blasting it out loud. It's a good tune, though. Yeah, man. I'm going to say if you want people to, if you want people to stay in a cult, cult compound forever and ever, play then play them any bangers, guaranteed dance fillers from Nancy, Nancy Sinatra. You fucking idiots. Yeah, play like Ed Sheeran or something. I'll be like, I'm coming. Uh, Nancy I'd Sinatra. Be out, I'd be like. Like do do do, like you can just imagine Davey crashing from like do 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 Well, the FBI refused to send milk for the children into the compound unless more of them were released. When court members sent videos out for the waiting authorities that include vision of any children inside, they were kept secret from the media in case they generated too much sympathy for crashing the public. Yeah. Also, they did help, like because they were like, well, you know, we want the press to help us. They hung a big banner up saying, um, God help us, we need the press. And then you got all these press outside on a video game. God help us, we are the press! It's like, this kid's dying in there. You pricks. So against the advice of negotiators, tactical rather than diplomatic measures were instigated against the compound residents, escalated the situation and really bugging the shit out of everyone. Agents claimed that they wanted to raise stress levels within the compound to make more and more people want to come out, but people who were trying to put pressure on, those fingers are literally on the triggers, and it was just a terrible, terrible idea. By the 23rd day, the frustrated FBI started considering tear gas as a non-lethal technique for getting everyone out, but they needed special clearance for that from Janet Reno, the Attorney General. Now she ummed and odged, suggesting alternatives like cutting off the water supply instead. And the FBI were like, "Look, we'll just use a little tiny a bit, little bit, just of to space. make him cry, just a tiny bit, and it's fine to use on children, probably. <laughs> Everyone will shake hands and wipe the tears when they go away, and we'll be heroes." And she's like, "No." And he like, "Please." And she's like, Oh okay, I can't say no to you, FBI. Look at that face. There's a story from one FBI agent who saw claims he saw a sign in a window from compound from a copend saying "flames await," which, if nothing else had gone down in the last month half, they had sure put some very bad writing on the wall, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mind you, people on both sides have claimed at various times to have seen all sorts of writing on all sorts of walls, though. But the truth has been so clouded with ideological agendas by now that the sign in the window might as well have read, you know, eat flame, you knob. You know, for reliable eyewitnesses everywhere. Yeah. So, on 19th of April, the last bit of warning over the loudspeakers, the feds moved in. Now, if you watch this, The official video of it, it's very badly edited together. There's a tank here, and it's there, and it's on fire. But they're saying they're just shooting in tear gas. Yeah. If you find the video from the little local news station in Waco, which is unedited, you will see flames coming out of the tank, like they're shooting in explosives, <clears throat> Just say, not to sound too Alex Jones here, but you only see on the news and the media what they want you to see. Well, it's true. And they didn't think about this little news. So they edited themselves, and they're like, "Well, we have got this." And they got out it got out. They got And that's why most people, like, people who saw it were like, "What the fuck, FBI? you shooting shooting? Like, no, no, we didn't." Well, what was about this? Shit. Forgot about them, guys. So, yeah, um, they st- started going in with booms on the tanks and everything and breaking the windows and poking holes in walls, and inserting tear gas. Seemingly, FBI didn't consider that an outfit that had stockpiled military-grade weapons and military-issue f- foods may have possibly stockpiled gas masks. Yeah. But you live and learn. Yeah, maybe next time. Walls were knocked over, agitation skyrocketed, and the situation became panicked. Now remember, they've made all this out of wood. Yeah. All these structures of wood. So if they are firing in... Explosives. Explosives, or... yeah. So, only nine cult members came out of the compound at the thought of imminent danger, and they were immediately arrested. On the last day of a terrible long siege, most of the Branch Davidians spent breakfast that morning in tea, shooting back, but by lunchtime... Fire started in at least three areas of the compound. It spread quickly and burned fiercely, and firefighters weren't allowed anywhere near the burning buildings for a very long time for the risk of being shot. Right. Even though there is phone calls. I'm going, please, we're on fire. We need the firefighters. Yeah. Yeah. After the fire had died down, 76 Branch Davidians were found dead inside the compound, and according to FBI reports, many of them died of knife or bullet wounds, not from the fire. It looked very much like some of them had killed each other and themselves, with Crash sporting a bullet wound right in the middle of his forehead. Mm. Investigators also found hundreds of firearms, millions of rounds of ammunition, and 48 guns that had been illegally modified to convert them into fully automatic weapons. They're illegally converted into making them a full automatic weapons because they didn't pay the tax on them. That's why they were illegal. Yeah. It was perfectly legal to do it, but you had to pay the tax. So many of the other claims about the activity within the compounds worlds, there was child abuse, paedophilia, spooky levels of mind control, have never been any substantial physical evidence to back them up, but here was a proof of the illegal firearms activity. Yay Except for the smouldering rubble, the extreme damage to their reputation, and the burnt corpses scattered all over the place, the ATF must have found some comfort in the fact that their original hunch was right. They did. They had not paid tax on these guns. Proportionate response. Yeah, you know, all these 76 people are dead, some children, but you know. Seven of the Branch Davidians were tried in jail for a mixture of manslaughter and firearms offences. The announcements of their sentencing would likely have been given a lot more attention in the media and it not occurred on the same day as O.J. Simpson went on the run from the police, and especially murdering his wife and hogtied all the limelight. Because, you know. Because celebrity. Because this is clearly not the biggest story.
1: Yeah. But
0: all said. said, it wasn't a good time for investigations that hoped to be quickly and efficiently uncovered the truth, was it? No. In that time. There are a load of questions about the Branch divisions and the siege in particular, that still haven't been adequately answered, despite more than one federal investigation and inquiry. It's hard to tell though whether they're, they're not answered because there are no answers, or they're not answered because of the competing aden- agendas of all the people who might otherwise be able to answer them. Those who strongly and sometimes violently defend the right to religion and gun ownership, a great combination to have at garden parties, kids, are often ready to defend the, every action that Davy Koresh has ever taken, including in some cases the very, very likely instances of sex with underage girls. On the other hand, though, those in government who made the decisions about the rage, siege, and final tear gas attack are traditionally not the kind of people to willing, willing to make, admit I've made a mistake here. And those who were there on both sides holding guns are not the kind of people who likely to admit they were wrong or mistaken or idiots. Both sides seemingly escalated the situation unnecessarily. Both sides had decisions made by macho aggressors who could have made better, more peaceful decisions. So why was there such a heavy-handed raid, raid Les? I'll tell you. The ATF could have served a search warrant to crash at the compound, but made the decision to instead launch a surprise raid. Yeah. Now, if it had been a surprise, there's a small chance it might have worked. But factoring in tip-offs meant that the group, people of bent on a fiery end, uh, you know, it's like end of days is coming, were expecting a battle, they were expecting them. Which has been awkward for them. Yeah, yeah. And how much did the ATF know about the Branch Davidians' obsession with Armageddon? Now, if you know that a group of armed people fantasize about going into battle as a trigger for the apocalypse do you really head over there to surprise them with guns and armoured vehicles? No. From quite early in the piece, Koresh had nicknamed the Mount Carmel compound Ranch Apocalypse. There's a clue in there somewhere, I think it was. Yeah, quite Quite a glaring one. Yeah. So, who shot first? On the first day when people on both sides were killed, each blames each other for the initiating the shootout. The obvious Star Wars cantina standoff comparison, neither the FTS, ATF, nor the branch divisions could agree who would be Han Solo and who would be Greedo. Why didn't ATF agents just detain J. Koresh, David Koresh when he was out for getting one of his jogs or getting supplies? A lot of people have asked this one. It's a pretty good question, really. But Crash didn't go out a lot, but people in Waco reported seeing him every now and again. The ATF claims that they wanted to ar- both arrest Crash and search the compound for weapons, but there's more than one way to skin a cat and raid a cult. Yes. And finally, who started the fires? There's considerable debate on this, and it's true that some of the gas cartridges the FBI used had the potential to be flammable in certain specific situations. Based on subtle hints, such as the fact that Davidians in general, and the Branch Davidians in particular, have gone on for years and years and years about how their ends would be met in a great fire and several little bits of evidence all over them contested, of course. The fire was started from within the compound. Suspicion obviously falls on cult members. Additionally, dying under siege from the government in a big fire would have made Qureshi's predictions come true. He prophesied an event like this, so his credibility had never been greater or more public than when those fires started. Unfortunately, it's hard to say I told you so when your hair's on fire. Yes. he did have quite a good mullet. If, and this is still an if, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians had goaded the ATF and the FBI into a violent siege in order to nudge the enclave towards a fiery Armageddon-esque end at the hands of the government, they wouldn't have been the first cult to find that kind of scenario appealing. Now, Om Shurinko, the People's Temple, the Family, Heaven's Gate, all fantasised about being participants in a battle between themselves and authorities. Now, if you get a chance to martyr yourself while you're under attack from a really big, important people in power, that means you successfully rattled some significant cages with your alternative theories to life. So your theories about life must have merit. Now, considering David Koresh's obvious narcissism, it's not unbelievable to imagine that once he managed to get the attention of the big dudes, the FBI, he figured he'd made it. Now, Americans have stayed angry about Waco for a long time with some taking it to the extremes. On the second anniversary of the fire at the Branch Davidian compound, Timothy McVeigh used his anger at what he perceived the injustices suffered by the, its inhabitants as part of his reason for bombing a building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people. When you decide to kill people to express your anger at people being needlessly killed, you're not really fucking helping. No. And when you decide to dig your heels and not back down, instead of finding a way to negotiate a compromise because you need everyone to think you're a tough guy, that's also not ideal. Clearly, the Bible can be interpreted in many, 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 many messed up ways to justify a thousand terrible things. But the bit where it says we should turn the other cheek, maybe think about that. Yeah, a bit more. Put more emphasis on that one. Yeah, and thus ends the tale of the Waco siege. So, Les, did you learn? I did. I did. It's a bit of a weird one, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I'd say that, like... I mean, nobody was in the right on this one, were they? No. But equally, I think...
0: I think the ATF and the F- FBI... Well, the ATF to start off with... Should have gone in a bit more peacefully. Yeah, I'd say so. But also, Davy Crash. Pr- stop sleeping with children yeah you know I don't think they all deserve to die but if Davy Crash did want more to die like that then he's going to keep prodding the bear but this bear's got like weapons that they're dying to fucking use there was no war on it that time they're like we got all this shit just got this image of a bear with a gun strapped to it he'd be soviet I know, yeah, Soviet man. But yeah, guys, let us know. What do you think? Uh, do you think the, it was the Branch Davidians setting fire to the compound? Or do you think the government did it? Is it a government conspiracy? Or are we turning into an Alex Jones channel? Let us know. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Email us, please, at enterthedarkpodcast at gmail.com. A few people have been emailing me after I said all I get is spam. Thank you for emailing me. I've got back to you all, I think. If I haven't, just send me another email. Um, It's lovely to hear from you, and you tell us nice things about how you like us and how we've. Some people have been telling us how their channel really cheered them up during bad times, so I'm glad we can. Um, Yeah, you can um, get in touch with us anytime, we'll do that. Um, you can find us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash enter the dark. Please subscribe, like, leave genetic comments, all that jazz, because it really does help us out. I've been Jan. He's been Les. Take care. Bye bye.